I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24 is on page 68 in the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at your house or if you don't have a Bible that seems accessible uh, in its language, maybe it's a little hard for you to understand, I encourage you to take one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. You're welcome to those. As you're turning there, I want to just express that this passage is a very important passage in Scripture. It is kind of tucked away, as it were, after the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago how I haven't heard many messages in the book of Exodus after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, here, not only after the Ten Commandments, but after three long chapters of rules and ordinances, we come to Exodus 24. And yet this portion of scripture is referred to and alluded to frequently in the New Testament. I have a a book called The Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament in my Bible software. And so I did a search for Exodus chapter 24, and there were 113 results in that commentary of the New Testament, the way the authors of the New Testament use the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean there are 113 different allusions, per se, to Exodus 24, but it does mean it occurs frequently, and that the Holy Spirit has inspired the authors of the Gospels, Hebrews, uh, Peter wrote about it, Revelation has some in it, John wrote, there are allusions to this chapter. So it'll be important for us as we study and understand the Old Covenant and this ratification ceremony, how it points us to and is interpreted by the New Testament. So that's the importance of what we're about to come to. I invite you to stand with me as we read it together. All of Exodus chapter 24. This is the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and bow in worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, We will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw God, the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. 
the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay there so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Aaron and her are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. Would you please be seated? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. We ask that you would open up the scriptures to us and teach us. Lord, would you use me by your spirit to teach and instruct our hearts with your word? Lord, may we respond in obedience and be moved by an understanding of the blood that was shed for us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Before we zoom right into Exodus 24, I want to focus on just that last verse we read, that Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And I just want to give you a tidbit for you to tuck away in your mind until December. Are you good at that? Can you remember things or will you have slept between now and then? All right, here's the tidbit. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is on the mountain. And it's during those 40 days that he will receive the instructions on the tabernacle. So for the next several weeks, we'll be studying about the tabernacle and the instructions the Lord gives to Moses. But it's just in those 40 days and 40 nights that Moses is on the mountain that the people will ask um, Aaron to create the golden calf for them. So while we will study for weeks and weeks, and it will seem like many chapters will have passed by between now and Exodus chapter 32, just remember it was only 40 days that the people disobeyed God's word. Now, focusing back in on the chapter itself, on this covenant ceremony, we see it is a formal ceremony to ratify the covenant the Lord is making with his people. It's a very solemn moment in Israel's history, and it formalizes the relationship between God and the people that he had called his segula, his special treasure, the people that he had chosen for himself, and he enters into covenant with them. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, if you're taking notes in the outline that was provided for you today, the first point on the outline is the Lord's invitation and the leader's response. We see this most clearly in verse 1 and verse 2 and in verse 12. God invites the people to come. He invites specifically Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders to come up the mountain and to worship him. Now, the people, the, the leaders, they respond to God's invitation to come. But I want you to see the threefold division of how they approach God. 
there are the people that are allowed now to the foot of the mountain without being uh, stricken out against or God striking them for coming close to the foot. But then some of the people of Israel go up the mountain. The leaders go with 70 of the Israelite elders and these four that are named. And they're up halfway up the mountain, so to speak. And then Moses alone goes all the way up into the cloud. And so what we see in this chapter at the Lord's invitation is a threefold division of those who are approaching him for worship, which very interestingly will help us understand the tabernacle and the threefold division with who may approach the Lord, with only the high priest entering into the most holy place, and even that only once a year. And so this chapter teaches us something about the tabernacle in a way that the tabernacle was patterned, some people think, over, over the Mount Sinai experience and what took place there. Another pattern for worship that some commentators see is the fact that there is a call to worship, a, a, a summons, will you come and worship me? Then there is the reading of God's word that you see in verse 3 and verse 7. There's a confession of faith in verses 4 and verse 7, and there is the sharing of a covenant meal. And so some commentators see that this is a pattern for how we are to worship God regularly. I'm not sure I personally would go so far as to say that this is prescriptive in any way, but I do think the principle is very clear, and that is this principle. We should worship God according to his commands. If you're following along in your outline, we should worship God according to his commands. You see, if the people had just decided to rush up the mountain without being invited by God, God would have stricken them dead. We know from other passages of scripture that no one can see God and live, which makes it a very interesting scenario because we see in this text that the Israelite elders did get a glimpse of God, didn't they? But they only saw what God revealed to them. Something like feet standing on a blue stone sky, as though God was so holy that he couldn't stand on the mountain that the men themselves were standing on. And they saw his feet similar to what Ezekiel saw and similar to what Amos' vision was. They see a glimpse of God, but they only see what God invited them to come and see, which is why verse 11 is important. If you look at Exodus 24 and verse 11 in your Bible, Moses says, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him and they ate and drank. And Moses has to say this because the expectation would be that God would have harmed them had they not been coming at his invitation. And so we learn that principle. We worship God at his command, at his invitation, at his beckoning, which is why every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we begin with a call to worship. It reminds us that we are worshiping God on his terms. He is holy and he has invited us to come. He has invited us to give him praise, but we dare not worship him out of bounds. I don't know if you noticed Nadab and Abihu's names here. But if you've studied the Bible, you know Nadab and Abihu didn't fare so well when they offered unauthorized worship, unauthorized fire, Bible says. They didn't come and approach God as he encouraged them and as he invited them to. 
And so we learn this principle that within the boundaries, God shows us that we can be very bold and that we can come and worship the God of the universe on his terms and according to his word. So that's the first lesson that we learn from this passage. But then secondly, I want us to note in this chapter, the Lord's commands and ordinances and the people's response. The Lord's commands and ordinances and the people's response. We see this in verses three and four and in verse seven. Moses comes down and he tells the people all the words and ordinances of the Lord. Now, those two phrases are to signify the Ten Commandments, which are the ten words that God spoke, and the Book of the Covenant, those three chapters of ordinances that God has been giving to Moses. And so Moses dutifully comes down and he reports to the people all the commandments and all of the ordinances that God has given. And their response in verse 3 and 4 is, we will do and we will obey all of these words. Now, in order to organize the outline today, I kind of combined some various verses. So I want you to be clear that verse 7 actually happens a day later. So Moses comes down the mountain and he shares this verbally. Then he goes and he writes down all the words and all the ordinances. They go to sleep, they wake up, and Moses builds this altar. He builds the 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There's some sacrifices going on. And then he reads the scroll. Or he reads the book of the covenant, as the ESV puts it. He reads them again, the Ten Commandments and the ordinances. And the people respond exactly the same way. In verse 7, it says, They responded, All that the Lord has said, we will do and we will obey. Now, it seems a little strange, doesn't it? That they commit themselves twice. But can you think of another formal covenant ceremony? in which people commit themselves twice? A wedding. Most of you have been to a wedding before, and there's the declaration of intent first, isn't there? Will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And the bride says, I will, or I do. And the same for the groom, right? They declare their intent first, but they're not formally married until they take their wedding vows. And so if that helps you to understand the solemnity or the seriousness of this kind of covenant ceremony that's taking place, they end up committing themselves twice in this way. Now, it might seem to us that they were a little overzealous in their commitment, right? Because we've just noted that within 40 days, they're going to ask Aaron to make it idle for themselves, right? And so they're like, yeah, we can do that. We'll do everything you command, Lord, and we've got this. It seems a little bit zealous, But I ask you this honest question, kind of rhetorically for your heart. What else could they do? What else would you do? The God who had created you, God who had redeemed you, brought you out, taken you across the Red Sea, sustained you, and brought you to this mountain in which he terrifyingly reveals himself as authoritative with the power to give these commands, gives you good and right and just decrees to follow. What else can you say? But we will obey. They did the right thing to say we will obey because there is no other option. I think of like Peter's words in John chapter six, where else will we go, Lord? You have the words of life. 
And so as they commit themselves, we learn this principle. We should obey God in response to his word. We should obey God in response to his word. Listen, every time we gather for worship, every time God's word is read or preached or studied in a Bible fellowship or in a life group, our only right response is a response of obedience. We study that in our youth Bible fellowship today. Building a foundation on the rock means not just hearing it, but obeying it, digging deep and doing what God says. And it seems to me that this kind of word-driven obedience from Exodus 24 is exactly what Peter had in mind when he began to write his epistle to the dispersed church. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, here it is, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you see that combination? You've been chosen and you've been called to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And then he says, may grace be multiplied to you. In verse 2, we see the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus brought together in an allusion to Exodus chapter 24. This is the same chapter in chapter 1 of 1 Peter that goes on to speak how the blood of Jesus, our spotless lamb, was shed for us. And that obedience to the word that had been preached to them came as a result of what the apostles' ministry had been. He says, you uh, have been obedient from the heart to the command given to you, and that word that was preached was the gospel. When the word was preached, you were called to obedience. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus was not shed for us to disregard his word and to live in disobedience. The blood that was sprinkled and the promise to obey upon hearing the word go together. The blood that was sprinkled by Christ and the promise and the commitment to obey his word go together. And as we consider this blood of Christ today, let us praise God that we are under the new covenant and not the old, which we're studying. So let's consider the third point in the outline, which is the Lord's covenant and the sprinkled blood. The Lord's covenant and the sprinkled blood in verses four through eight. Look at verse five, for example, in Exodus 24. We see that there's a reference to animals being sacrificed. Moses takes half of the blood and he puts it in basins and he takes another half and he puts it on the altar. Now, I don't know about you, but when I cut my finger one time, I was in the kitchen. Christina's remembering this. She thinks I'm going to pass out just standing here telling you about it. I cut my finger pretty good, and I got really woozy seeing the blood. Now, thankfully, I do a little bit better when it's like someone or something else's blood, but there was a lot of blood happening. Let's just put it like that, okay? Now, I know it's kind of gross, but we got to get to the point of this. Basins of blood. But this wasn't an unusual way 
for a covenant to be ratified. In fact, this was a common practice, and the symbolism of the uh, killing of the animal and the shedding of its blood simply meant this. May it be so to me if I don't fulfill my end of this commitment. Like, do to me what's being done to this animal right now. It was punishable upon death for not fulfilling one side of the covenant. And so the blood was shed, and some of it was sprinkled on the altar. And that symbolized forgiveness, symbolized atonement. In fact, later Jewish rabbis, even the Jewish rabbis, would say that this symbolism of the blood sprinkled on the altar was the blood to cover sins and transgressions and to bring atonement for the people. And then the other half of the blood is sprinkled on the people. And that symbolized their acceptance into the covenant, their inclusion into the covenant community, and that God had accepted the forgiveness of their sins. There was blood on the altar and blood on them. And so this leads to a third principle for us today from the text. We should thank God for forgiveness through the blood. We should thank God for forgiveness through the blood. You see, this old covenant was not possible except for the shedding of blood. The animals had to die in order for forgiveness to be made possible. Hebrews chapter 9, if you have your Bibles and would like to turn there, I'm going to be referring to Hebrews chapter 9 a good bit from here to the end of the message. And in verse 22 of Hebrews 9, the author says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's quite clear that the writer of Hebrews had Exodus chapter 24 on his mind when he wrote. He quotes verse 8 of Exodus 24 in a broader section beginning in chapter 9 verse 1 of Hebrews, going all the way to chapter 10 and verse 18. And his whole point in that section of the the, the letter in Hebrews is that Christ's covenant, the new covenant, is superior to the old covenant. And he goes on to talk about how the old covenant was established with regulations. And there are three things that he points out and he makes parallel uh, arguments to. One is the place of the old covenant. Another is the blood of the old covenant. And the third is the continual offering of sacrifices for the old covenant. And in every way, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the new covenant is greater. The place was not in the tabernacle where blood was shed. The place was in the heavenly realms where Christ offered his own blood. That's the difference too. The blood is not just the blood of bulls and goats. It's the blood of Christ, the sinless savior who was given for us and his blood was shed. And then the third thing was that when you were in the old covenant, the high priest would go and he would make atonement year after year. And he'd have to keep on going into the Holy of Holies and keep on making sacrifices. But Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, sacrificed his blood once and for all. One time, which incidentally, and I say this with all respect, but if you have a Catholic neighbor, encourage them to read through Hebrews 9 and 10. 
and consider with them the once for all sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Because the official understanding of the Catholic Church is that every time the Mass is performed, Christ's blood is being sacrificed over and over again, and the priest is performing a sacerdotal function, a priestly function over this sacrifice. But their own Bibles teach that Christ was sacrificed. His blood was shed once for all. Now we come back to the comparison between the covenants. We know that the writer of Hebrews was obviously thinking about Exodus 24. He goes on to describe this ceremony. If you look at verse 18 and 19 of Hebrews 9, he says, The first covenant was inaugurated with blood, verse 19, for when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself, And all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. So he has this covenant ratification ceremony in his mind as he's writing these chapters. It's important for us to study all of scripture. And I pray that even studying Exodus 24 today, you've gained a greater understanding of the blood of Jesus And the importance of this comparison that the writer is making. Jesus himself at the Last Supper in Mark chapter 14 said, alluding to Exodus 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we should be able to recall this Exodus 24 ceremony in our minds and think of the comparisons and the contrasts that are taking place. You see, just as Moses sprinkled blood on the altar, Christ shed his blood on the cross. The cross is where the new covenant blood was sprinkled. The cross is where the blood made atonement for our sins. And the cross is where the blood that was shed offers forgiveness for sins. And so brothers and sisters, We should stand amazed at the cross of Jesus and the blood that was shed for us and ask like the writer of the old hymn, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That very question was asked to Jake and me standing on the streets of Birmingham by a Muslim. He scoffingly said, what kind of God would send his son to shed his blood and die. Not very powerful. I said, oh, what kind of grace? What kind of grace that the God of the universe would humble himself and become an obedient servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. They are missing the grace of God. It's very clear in Scripture We understand that 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. First Peter says this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's the, the shed blood and the obedience required. He gave his blood on the tree so we could live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. But get this, we read in Ephesians, in him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins, why? According to the riches of his grace. There it is. That's why Jesus died. Because God, being rich in mercy, gave himself and shed his blood in the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So dear friend, the invitation to the, today is this. If you have not yet come to the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, then come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today into his blood and be made complete and give all glory to his name.